Well, you might be a football nerd if you remember this, but it was about six years ago or so when Monday Night Football was forced to change their theme song mid-season. Hank Williams Jr. had performed the Monday Night Football theme song for quite some time, actually, but during a, uh, a news cycle, he compared a politician to Hitler. He said, Our, you know, this particular politician, I don't even remember who the politician was, is as evil as Hitler. And so he was fired from Monday Night Football because you're not allowed to do that, apparently. Uh, compare politicians to Hitler, which raised this question in my mind. Before Monday Night Football, or even before Hitler, who were evil people compared to? Like if you lived in the early 1900s and you said, this person is so evil, I mean, what did you say? They're as evil as who? Like Through writing throughout the world's history, who do people compare evil people to? Because today it's Hitler. Like, oh, that's Hitler kind of talk. But who was it before Hitler? And, you know, I thought maybe like Attila the Hun or somebody or Napoleon or something like that. Like, you're so evil, it's Attila the Hun. But uh, I spent some time on Google. Hey, it's what I'm paid to do. I'm a professional here. Uh, don't try this at home. And I found a very interesting answer to the question. Uh, before Hitler, people were generally compared to local politicians if they were really evil. Uh, like, you're so evil, you're as evil as Joe over there was the kind of language people used. Um, so Hitler really raised the bar on evil, I guess. There is an exception, though. In England, a lot of times, if you wanted to call somebody really wicked, you would call them Pharaoh. You would say, you're as wicked as Pharaoh. There's a quote by Thomas Paine after the Lexington Massacre in 1775 that led to the Civil War. He wrote, I reject the hardened, sullen, tempered Pharaoh of England and their so-called king forever. All right. Those are fighting words, calling the king of England so-called and calling him Pharaoh. Those are fighting words. So I have a question. Is Pharaoh the most evil person in the Old Testament? I mean, it's difficult to quantify evil, and certainly the Pharaoh's heart was as hard as a diamond. But in Israel's history, I don't think there's much of a debate. Manasseh, what we see tonight in 2 Kings 21, is certainly the worst king that Judah ever had, Period. In fact, he may very well be the most evil person in all of the Old Testament. I want to look at him this evening to find a picture, even in his hard heart, of how the gospel can change a person. Now, there's lots of kings in the book of 2 Kings that are described as Israel's worst. You know, it's an interesting debate. Is Josiah a better king than Hezekiah? And you can make arguments both ways. But when it comes to the worst king, there's several kings that are described as Israel's worst king. And you think, how can this be? Are they contradictions? No, it's just that they keep getting worse. You know, if you jump off a cliff after you've been falling five seconds, that's the longest you've ever free-falled. <laughs> after you've fallen 10 seconds, that's the longest you've ever free-falled. After you've fallen 20 seconds, that's the longest. It keeps getting worse. That's how it is reading the book of Second Kings. Every king, it seems, can be worse than the one before. And that's the way evil works. Men go from bad to worse. The sins that are tolerated in one generation become accepted in the next. The sins that are accepted in one generation become celebrated in the next. The sins that you and I find almost commonplace in our culture today would have been unspoken of a few generations ago. Again, that's the way that evil works. People go from bad to worse unthinkable sins of one group become standard practice of the next. And this is why the story of First and Second Kings is littered with these cataclysmic judgments from God. 
In fact, Scripture is littered with these cataclysmic judgments from God. You find as you go through the, the story in the, in the Bible that God is, it seems, you can knit the Bible together as a story of one judgment to another from being thrown out of, of Eden, as was the case with Adam and Eve and Cain, of course, after that, and being flooded. The flood, for example, ba- Babel come crashing down. The plagues brought on Egypt. I mean, it seems like the Old Testament is one story of judgment after another. By the time we're in 2 Kings 21, and by the way, 2 Kings is wrapping up. It'll be finished by May, I promise. (laughs) By now, Israel's had its own land for nearly 800 years. They've had their own king for 400 of those years. And they have only used their new land and their new king to fall to new depths of evil. So if Nimri, back in 1 Kings, was the worst king ever, that's only because he came before Ahab. And if Ahab was the worst king ever, that's only because he came before Manasseh. And that leads to this tension in the book of 2 Kings that you have to appreciate to understand the nature of this book. God's justice versus God's kindness. To understand this book, you have to have your head around this tension. If God is just, then why doesn't he punish Israel? And if God is kind, why doesn't he forgive Israel? The question of 2 Kings is not why do bad things happen to good people, but rather you'd word it this way. 2 Kings is about why don't more bad things happen to bad people? I mean, why doesn't God regulate them? Why doesn't he judge them? Why doesn't he remove them from the promised land? He's been all talk for many generations now, it seems. Even back at the end of 1 Kings, you had these, these threats given to them that if they keep going down this path, then they will be brought to an end. Does Israel deserve exile? Yes. Does Judah deserve exile? Yes. If there was a contest between the nations of the earth about who could offend God more, Israel would win, hands down. Things have gone wrong in Israel. In fact, one commentator describes a section of 2 Kings as God being, quote, extremely litigious with his people. It's one form of rebuke after another where God chronicles all of their sins. And this chapter is going to show that by placing the blame for Israel's fall on Manasseh, Yahweh is making a public declaration that he is not at fault. Israel is. God is not the one who did things wrong in this book. God did not have a wrong plan by bringing Israel into its own promised land. This plan was good and it was right, but it's Israel that has contrived against it. And so now the question that we're going to think of tonight as we get into 1 Kings 20, or 2 Kings 21, can God punish the people in Judah and the people in Jerusalem without selling out his own promises? I mean, do you see why it seems that God has almost painted himself into a corner here? Can he punish Judah without breaking his promise to David that there will always be a descendant on the throne? Can he judge Judah's evil while at the same time being the one who upholds his word? I mean, if he doesn't punish Judah, people will say God doesn't care about evil. God is a hypocrite. God lets his people get away with sins he would never let the Egyptians get away with, for example. But if he does punish his people, then people will say God doesn't have the power to protect his people. He doesn't have the power to forgive them of their sins. He's taking his wrath out on his own people. So it seems that God is opening himself up to accusations of unfairness and hypocrisy no matter what he does. That's the tension that this chapter will address head on. 
And of course, we're familiar with that tension. It is the basic tension in Scripture. How can God be both the just and the justifier? I mean, forget about dealing with it with just Manasseh or dealing with it with Judah. How about dealing with it with you? Can God be able to forgive you of your sin and still count himself as holy? Or can God judge you for your sin and still count himself as a forgiver? How can God be both just and justifier? And that's the tension that Manasseh is going to expose for us. Manasseh embodies this tension perfectly because Manasseh was perfectly wicked. Now, to understand the full power of this chapter, I'm going to give you an outline that's not really a preaching kind of outline. It's more of a, uh, an exegetical outline. I want to give you the outline of the, our, our outline will be the tragedy of Manasseh. As we go through this, I want you to look at what makes Manasseh so wicked. This is the story of 2 Kings 21. Beyond the introduction, by, this, by the way, of this chapter, it, most of this chapter is about Manasseh's evil deeds. You get an introduction of who he is, and you get concluding remarks at the end of the chapter about his death. But most of it is just about how evil he is. Your outline will take you through what makes his life such a tragedy. Stop one in your outline is where he came from. First, Manasseh is such a tragedy. He's so evil because of where he came from. We find this in verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hezavah. So he became king at 12. He reigned with his dad for 10 years. I'll spare you the timeline. There's lots of math involved. You have to carry the one and everything. But the bottom line is that he reigned with his dad for 10 years. He started as 12, which means he was ID'd as king when he was seven years old. This is when Hezekiah, his dad, was told that he would have 15 more years left to live. At that point, Manasseh was seven. And so his dad knows he has 15 years left to live. He looks at all the possibilities, and he's going to spend these 15 years raising, training up the person he's going to hand the kingdom over to. He sets his eye on Manasseh, certainly not Hezekiah's oldest son, I don't think, but the favored son, he becomes the one who'll be king. So Hezekiah mentors him for five years as a prince, and then for 10 years brings him into his role as a co-regent. So they're reigning together. And the last 10 years of his life, it's the two kings together. It's something they did often in Israel's history. Manasseh is a huge contrast from his father. You know, my, my dad and I look basically the same. He's the 25-year-old older version of me. I remember the first time Deidre met my dad before we got married. We left and we're, we're driving uh, away from my parents' house and uh, Deidre, Deidre tells me, you know what? I have no excuse now. I know exactly what you're going to look like in 25 years. <laughs> you couldn't say that about Manasseh and Hezekiah. I don't know their physical appearance, but Manasseh looks nothing like his dad. His dad was a godly king, a noble king, a humble king. He had a period of pride in his life. We looked at that last week, but the Lord brought him to humility. That's the legacy of Hezekiah. That's not Manasseh. Hezekiah is one of the best kings Israel ever had. Manasseh is one of the worst. And even that sort of catches his tension because at the end of chapter 20, what we looked at last week, Isaiah tells Hezekiah that all of his family and all the wealth of Israel will be taken into captivity. And that was how we ended our, our sermon last week, that all the wealth of Israel will be gone. All of Judah's descendants will be taken as slaves into Babylon. And so that raises the question, if Hezekiah is such a good king, how can God take his children as captives? 
That doesn't make any sense. If he is so godly, shouldn't his children inherit the kingdom? How is he going to take them away? And that answer is Manasseh, by making the children so wicked that nobody will even remember Hezekiah. Because God is done dealing with Judah. So from Hezekiah's reign, God gives him the worst king they've ever had so that he can be just when he exiles them. This is a reminder of the truth that's seen in Ezekiel 18, that God doesn't punish people for their father's sins. He punishes them for their own sins. And so Judah is going to get taken in exile, not because generations earlier they had King Ahaz and other ungodly kings, and so they're being judged for that. No, they're going to go into exile because their own kings are awful, even though they have good kings here and there. It's a reminder that this is also a two-way street. Not only does each person stand on his own two feet as far as evil goes, but also as far as righteousness goes. Hezekiah was raised Manasseh, but Manasseh has not learned his father's righteousness. Perhaps you've heard it said this way, parking in a garage does not make you a car. Right? Eating a Taco Bell does not make you a taco. For lots of reasons. (laughs) And going to church doesn't make you a Christian. In Manasseh's case, having parents who honored the Lord doesn't mean that he'll be righteous. It simply makes his fall all the more tragic. He comes from the heights of godliness and he descends into the depths of sin. Look at verse 2. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh according to the despicable practices of the nations whom Yahweh drove out before the people of Israel. He was a wicked person from a great lineage. And that makes it so sad. It's not as if he's some random king that ascended to the throne by happenstance, he was hand-selected by a godly king. Secondly, so tragic, not just because of who he was, but because of what he did. He reversed all of the reforms of those who went before him. Verse 3, he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And you can just pause there. Remember, the high places is what was vexing Israel for generations. No matter how good the kings were, they could never, ever get rid of the high places. That was the mounds that people made so they could worship God, in quotes, on their own. Basically, it was a place for sexually immoral practices. They disguised as worshiping Yahweh. It's one of those cultural sins that seems obvious from outside of the culture, how awful it was. But for those inside it, they didn't see it. So even most of the godly kings could never get rid of the high places, probably because they weren't fully aware of how awful and offensive they were to God. It was just part of the world they lived in. But Hezekiah saw through that mist, and he did get rid of the high places. Well, now the new king is in town, and day one, and I mean, this is the first thing that it leads with, the author leads with this. It was Hezekiah's greatest accomplishment. It's the first thing Manasseh undoes. And you've seen this in presidential transitions in our own country. You know, a new party comes into office and they spend the, the time between the election and the inauguration preparing all the documents to undo the things that the successor had done. I had a friend that was working on that for, for President Trump and that's, you know, asked him, what are you doing? He's like, basically I'm drawing documents that undo everything <laughs> that the, the main accomplishments of President Obama were getting all the documents in place to undo them as soon as Trump gets sworn in, we can undo all these things. And if, if Trump is replaced by somebody from the other party, I can guarantee the same thing will happen there. They will spend all that time before the inauguration preparing all the documents to undo some of the major things that President Trump is in. That's just the way politics work. It's sort of sobering to see that back in Judah 
all the way back then. Hezekiah got sworn in on a platform of removing the high places. (laughs) And Manasseh gets sworn in on a platform of building them back up again. Day one. Second, it says he erected altars for Baal. He made an Asherah. I mean, Baal is the rain god. Are you kidding me? They're back to Baal worship? Clearly, Manasseh hasn't read 1 Kings 18. All the Baal prophets were slaughtered. Remember, Baal was shown to be a false god. Listen, that kind of proof never slows down idol worship. I mean, proof for the folly of idol worship is abundance, and yet it doesn't even make a dent in it. He made Nashroth, that's the sexually immoral pole. This is just what Ahab, the king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He begins worshipping the stars. At the Asherah pole, he's worshiping Baal. I mean, he's not even logical here. He's worshiping the rain god. He's worshiping the stars. He's worshiping at the high places. He's worshiping the Asherah. He's doing everything. The only god that he'll meet that he won't worship is Yahweh. But everything else is fair game. He built up what Hezekiah had torn down. He tore down what Hezekiah had built up. And that's going to be his legacy. And it's interesting that he is, unites himself with the legacy of Ahab. Ahab was, if Manasseh is the worst king Judah had, Ahab is the worst king Israel had. But that's where he takes his lineage from. Verse 4, he built altars in the house of Yahweh. And you would think, oh, that's good. But they weren't altars for Yahweh. This is the very place which Yahweh had said, in Jerusalem I'll put my name. That's the place. So you think, oh, this is, this is good. He's going to build altars in Yahweh's house. That's the start. Well, look at verse 5. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of Yahweh. So he's moving out the things that the law commands to be in the temple to make room for all of his idols in the temple in the very place where Yahweh said, I'll put my name there. There's nothing sacred with him. He's obsessed with self-interest, conquest, greed, and betrayal, and so he pays no heed to, to the law of the Lord. He dismisses Yahweh's law entirely. Rather than honoring Yahweh, he seeks out strange gods and places them in the temple. Remember, Nadab and Abihu, they were killed for offering strange fire before God. This isn't strange fire. These are strange idols in the temple itself. Now, why would God kill Nadab and Abihu, but let Manasseh live as long as he's going to, we're going to see how long he lives later on this, after, or this evening, but Nadab and Abihu were killed instantly for something that was a fraction of the crime of Manasseh. And that's because by killing Nadab and Abihu instantly, God is telegraphing to Israel for their history that he will be approached with holiness. But by letting Manasseh go for so long, God is telegraphing to Israel that they, if left on their own, are just as wicked as all the other nations in the world. There's no extra righteousness that comes from being Jewish. It should be in the back of your mind when you need Romans 2 and Romans 3. Is there a benefit of being Jewish? Yeah, you received the law and the covenants, but does that benefit help you with godliness? No. It just means you're accountable to more. That's what God is demonstrating to them here. Why would you swap out Yahweh for idols to stars? Because you can control your idols. They are what you make them. It's the opposite with the true God. I mean, that is the allure of idol worship. With idol worship, you can self-style your God brought my kids uh, last Saturday, I think it was, to watch um, this contractor that we know tear down a house. And it was pretty fun to watch. He got a, a loader and just you know, rammed it and uh, shoveled stuff up. And it was, it was, it was, it was really cool. Uh, the kids kind of liked it too, I think. Um, 
Well, we talked to the owners as we're watching it, and we're like, why did you decide to set it in your house? I and mean, the house wasn't that old. It was, you know, 50 years old or something. It's not, and it's just in the street across the street from the church. And so, I mean, it's not ancient. Why did you tear it down? And they said, well, you know, we started to think we wanted to redo our kitchen, and we wanted to redo the porch, and the contractor just said, hey, look, when you, once you cross a certain threshold, why don't you just knock the whole thing down and design the exact house you want, then rather than piecemealing it, it would be the same cost and sold. That's what Manasseh does with worship. He's not, comport- he's not changing his life to match God's word. He gets to the point where he's like, you know what? God's word wants too much for me. Let me just wreck the whole temple down and build up my own gods and then I can make my religion exactly like I want it to be. That's Manasseh. He wants to worship what he can control. Thirdly, what he loved. You had a window in his heart here. Verse 6. He burned his son as an offering. He used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. He did everything contrary, in other words, to what the law commands. He loved himself and he wanted a system he could manipulate and control. And this little list here in verse 6 is horrible. It begins with him offering his son as a sacrifice. That was something, if you remember, Abraham was brought on the hill to overlook the promised land and Abraham's asking, you know, can I take it now? Can I take it now? You know, Lot, go to Sodom and Gomorrah, but Abraham wants the promised land. And God tells him, no, you can't have it yet because the people there aren't wicked enough to justify kicking them out. So you're going to take all of the patriarchs, they're going to go to Egypt for 400 years to, you know, keep this in the oven for a while, let the evil in Israel cook, and in 400 years you can come back and they'll be wicked enough to, to justify annihilating them. And what made them so wicked is by the time Moses is leading them back Uh, across the wilderness and Joshua into the promised land, the people who lived there who had made child sacrifice a normal part of their culture. That's why Deuteronomy 18, I'll just read it to you, Deuteronomy 18 verse 10, says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a wizard or a necromancer, whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh. And it's because of these abominations, this is Deuteronomy 18, 12, that Yahweh, your God, is driving those nations out from before you. So this is the list. The list you see here in verse 6, it's not random sins. It's, he's borrowing from Deuteronomy 18. And he's saying what exactly what made these other nations so awful is what Manasseh is turning in as his resume. It's what he boasts about. Manasseh loved looking like the nations that God hated more than he loved God. He doesn't desire God at all. He has all the wrong role models. He imitates the detestable Canaanites. He imitates Jeroboam, who built the high places. He imitates Ahab, the advocate for Baal worship. He imitates Ahaz, the one who brought child sacrifice back to Israel. He imitates Saul, who would visit necromancers and mediums. It's hard to imagine a more damning critique of a king, and this is a king in the line of David. Verse 7, the carved image of Asherah he made, he set in the house of which Yahweh said to David and Solomon his son, in this house and of, in Jerusalem I have chosen of all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name there forever. That's where he put the Asherah pole. 
and I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I give their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I've commanded them and according to all the law my servant Moses commanded them. That's quoting from earlier. The verse is going to describe why David is going to build the, and Solomon will build the temple there. It's the very thing that Manasseh is defiling. Verse 9, they did not listen. Manasseh led them to astray and to do more evil than the nations had done when Yahweh destroyed before the people of Israel. So this right here is letting you know that under Manasseh, Israel had became more evil than the nations that were there before Israel moved in. I mean, there's, there's nothing left to say. There's, there's no evil Manasseh won't commit. There's nothing worse than that line right there in verse 9. Fourthly, the tragedy is who he rejected. So you see the tragedy where he came from, what he did, what he loved, and who he rejected. This is going to bring the rebuke from the Lord. Perhaps you've had this experience. You're at Walmart or something, and you see the kid throwing a temper tantrum. And look, we've all been there. My kids have thrown temper tantrums in the store before. But sometimes you encounter it with the kid throwing the temper tantrum, and you hear the mom say, you know, if you don't knock it off, you're going to get a spanking or, sorry, a discipline. And I'm going to count to three. One, two, two and a half, two and three quarters. Don't make me start this counting over again. I'm warning you. And there's just something in the tone of voice, again, not judging, we've all been there and have, kids have meltdowns, of course, but something in the tone of the voice and you realize, you know, this is, there's never been any discipline, there's no spanking, and the kid knows there's no spanking, the discipline has never happened in this scenario right here at all, ever, and so you, you don't, you lose kind of sympathy for them. I remember one time at, at Disneyland, you and I were at Disneyland and we heard a parent in line uh, tell their, you know, young kid, this is nine in the morning, by the way, at the very beginning of the day at Disneyland. You know, if you don't start behaving, we're going to go home. <laughs> yeah, right. You shot 400 bucks. You're not going home. <laughs> Nobody believes this. Not even the four-year-old believes this. <laughs> and this is where you are in 2 Kings 21. You're wondering, is God that parent on the other side of the cereal aisle at Walmart? Is God that parent at 9 a.m. at Disneyland? I mean, is he going to tell them again, this time I really mean it. You will lose the promised land. I am not messing around. I've been saying this for 300 years. Is that what you're going to get here? So this chapter so far has just been a description of Manasseh's deeds. Now the Lord is going to speak. Yahweh said by a servant of the prophets, because Manasseh, the king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done these things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him. He's made Judah to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster, and you're going to hear these three or four word pictures here as we go through this, such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Well, that's a pretty powerful word picture, isn't it? God says, I'm going to do something so awful to Manasseh and so awful to Judah that when other people hear about it, their ears will itch. Their ears will, will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria. Now, the measuring line of Samaria, Samaria was, the, was Israel that's already been taken into captivity. So God says, I'm going to send the same measuring line there and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And these are tools that we don't use, you know, the measuring line or the plumb line. Uh, you might update this with a surveyor and a bulldozer would be the language God is using. The bulldozer that just devastated Israel, I'm going to send it down to Judah, God says. If you woke up in the morning at your house and you heard a, a you know, front-end loader idling outside and the wrecking ball outside idling and men in orange vests, you know, the orange surveyor vest walking around your house and, you know, turning off your gas and everything, you're like, what are you doing? Oh, we're going to, you know... 
expand the road, knock down the house. <laughs> That's the imagery God is using right here. I'm sending the survey crew over. We're turning off the gas. The house is going down. You're like, I live here. And God says, I know. <laughs> I will wipe you like one wipes a dish, God says. Now, believe it or not, in a world without dishwashers, there's two Hebrew words for wiping a dish, which I guess you probably have at least two if you don't have a dishwasher in your language. One word is you just scrape the plate off. You knock the food in the trash. That's not the word that's used here. The other word is that you scrub the plate so hard you're almost damaging it. That's the word that's used here. Not just I clean out the trash into the trash can, but I'm scrubbing it so hard the Teflon is coming off. Husbands know what I'm talking about right here. And you learn, if I, if I wash the pans like this, I don't have to do dishes ever again. <laughs> no, just kidding. They do not teach that in period. That is so bad. I can't, I can't believe I said that. That's the... The image here where God says, I am going to scrub you so hard that you peel. And then look what he says. I will take you and I will fan you. I will turn it upside down and fan you. I'm going to scrub you into oblivion and then fan you. Literally, Hebrew is fan you through the air here. I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they've done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even into this day. So in other words, God is done. God is done with them. They're going to be destroyed. There was no hope before. Hezekiah prayed, got 15 more years and now you're back to no hope again. Moreover, Manasseh, moreover, I mean, talk about a strange moreover right there. What else can you say? But moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he'd filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. That, in Hebrew, that phrase from one end to the other, it's literally mouth to mouth. God is using hyperbole here through the mouths of the prophets, but in a very personal and, and uh, profound way. In other words, Jerusalem was filled with blood. And the image is probably from one dead body's mouth to the other. The, the Manasseh killed so many people, the streets were flowing with blood. And you think, how did he make the streets flow with blood? I mean, that's got, it is hyperbole, I'm sure, an exaggeration to make the point. But remember, Manasseh often killed people by sawing them in half. He's the one who killed Isaiah by sawing Isaiah in half. That's how Manasseh responded to the prophets, by the way. They came and rebuked him. He just cut him in two. That creates a lot of blood, of course. So much so, verse 16 says, it's flowing through the streets of Jerusalem. God kept sending prophets to Manasseh. Manasseh kept killing him. The streets are flowing with blood. And that's in addition to, look at the middle of verse 16, that's in addition to the sin that made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in Yahweh's sight. It's a graphic image of innocent blood on royal hands flowing from the prophets that dared to oppose their king. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did, the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of Chronicles, Kings of Judah? Remember, that's not the biblical Chronicles, it's just a secular book. And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Amon, his son, reigned in his place. We'll look at Amon later, but just marvel for a second here what's shocking about Manasseh's death should raise some questions to you. First of all, he reigned, verse 1 says, for 55 years. It's an unusual number. Can you think of any other king that's reigned for 55 years? No. 
Nobody in Israel's history reigned for 55 years. David reigned for 40 years. Nobody reigned for 55 years. Netanyahu, to this very day, has not reigned for 55 years. Israel has never had a leader in its history reign as long as Manasseh did. Why? Why would God let Manasseh reign for so long when his dad, his godly dad, Hezekiah, had to beg for 15 more years of life? Why do good kings get humiliating deaths and Manasseh gets a garden burial? Did you see that little detail thrown in there in verse 18? He was buried in the garden of his house. Are you kidding me? It's like a little tourist trap. Picture a little fountain bubbling there. You can come see Manasseh's bones. <laughs> Why does God give you those little images? 55 years, a garden burial. The point, I think, is connects to the point of 2 Kings. Let me make the point this way. When we had Madison, our oldest daughter, somebody gave us a collection of board books, those little, little tiny books like this big with you know, like six words in each page. They're the size that you know babies can chew on them, kind of thing. The first one I read was called The Fierce Rabbit. And I chose that one. I think it's like the Peter the Rabbit series, but I chose that one because it, what a cool title, The Fierce Rabbit. I'm in. <laughs> if I'm going to read a baby book, I want to read the one called The Fierce Rabbit. Sign me up. And uh, I was kind of angry at the book by the end of it. I have typed down the entire, all the words of the whole book on my notes right here. I'll read you the entire book right now. I, I don't still have the book. I would have, should have brought it for show and tell tell but here's the book there once was a fierce rabbit next page he came out of his hole and saw the nice rabbit in the park next page a boy was walking through the park and the boy had a carrot with him knowing that rabbits like carrots the boy gave his carrot to the nice rabbit however when the boy turned away the fierce rabbit scratched the nice rabbit and stole his carrot Aww. the nice rabbit was scared and hurt when the boy saw what had happened he decided to never give anything to the fierce rabbit. The end. And I throw the book. Ah! <laughs> Moralistic drivel, banish head. Is that the lesson of the Bible? Is this just a fancier version of the fierce rabbit? That Manasseh was an evil, wicked king, and God saw that he was an evil and wicked king, and so decided never to give evil and wicked kings anything good ever again. Do good or try harder, be better. And the answer is, is no. And I'm going to say it this way. The, the lesson from Manasseh here is not be good, not bad. And that's a particular temptation in the book of Kings because every king is dismissed with a moral summary. He did right in the eyes of the Lord or he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Every king is dealt with in that way. That's not possibly the point of this book. So I want you to turn right to 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles 33. Just jump right a few books. Verses 11 through 10. And I've told you throughout our study in First and Second Kings that I'll never have you go to Second Chronicles except for one exception. This is that one exception. I've been squirreling it away for two years now for this exact moment. Second Chronicles 33. Verse 11, speaking of Manasseh, therefore Yahweh brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Syria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. That's how Manasseh's story ends. He gets hooks in his nose and let out. Hooks, by the way, when the Babylonians use hooks, we're going to see this at the end of 2 Kings, what they do is they put it through the bridge of the nose and then lure, lead you around that way. You can't escape. I mean, you leave your nose. 
They didn't prefer handcuffing. They preferred nose hooking. And that's what happens to Manasseh. And they bound him with chains, brought him to Babylon, chains went around the waist. When he was in distress, he entreated the favor of Yahweh his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Okay, that's not expected. Manasseh. Manasseh, verse 13, praised to God, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that Yahweh was God. Huh? This evil, wicked, villainous, worst king ever, Manasseh, has a saving encounter with Yahweh at the end of his life. And you might say, oh, you're reading too much into knew Yahweh was God. I mean, that doesn't mean he got saved. Okay, let's read a little bit more. Afterwards, Manasseh built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gahon in the valley, for the entrance into the fish gate, and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. So he's fortifying the temple now. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah. Now he's protecting it. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of Yahweh and all the altars he'd built in the mountains to the house of Yahweh and in Jerusalem. He threw them outside the city. So he builds a wall around the temple. Then he goes into the temple and he starts chucking all the idols over the wall. I mean, that would be quite a scene, wouldn't it? Your king just gets kidnapped with a hook in his nose, gets escaped somehow by praying to God, comes back in, builds a wall around the temple. The king who defiled the temple sneaks into the temple, and now you're wondering, what's Manasseh doing inside the temple? And Baal statue flying through the air. Oh, is that an Asherah pole? Clunk. He's throwing everything out of the temple. Verse 16, he restored the altar of Yahweh. He offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and thanksgiving. He commanded Judah to serve Yahweh, the God of Israel. I mean, that is outlandish. Nevertheless, in a sense, it's too little too late for the nation. The people still sacrifice to the high places. But they only now they did it to Yahweh, supposedly. But verse 18, the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to God, the words of his seers who spoke to him in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, behold, there in Chronicles, the kings of Israel. And his prayer, how God was moved by his entreaty, and all his sin and his faithfulness and the sights, faithlessness and the sites on which he built the high places, except the ashram and the images, before he humbled himself, behold, they are written in the Chronicles of the seers. In other words, Manasseh gets radically saved. So much so that the scripture categorizes all the evil and the wickedness you read about in 2 Kings and puts that pre-conversion. You know the old adage in Christianity, are you saying if Hitler you know, asked for forgiveness on his deathbed that he would be saved? You know, it is kind of a complicated answer because I think at some point you get to a point where you're given over to your sins and the Lord is no longer uh, working. Your heart has been hardened and seared and you've been turned over to your desires. Outside of that person, you never know when they've hit that point. You can't tell in somebody else's life. But here, Manasseh seems to have gotten to that point, and yet he gets saved at the end of his life. The lesson is not be good, not bad. The lesson is trust God because he saves people from their sins. At the end of Manasseh's life, determined to overcome him and make him an everlasting monument to grace and mercy, God stirs up the king of Assyria against him, causes Manasseh to be vanquished, drags dragged with a hook in his nose, humbled, saved, converted, brought back to Jerusalem, demonstrating his changed life. With a hook in his nose and fetters on his feet and tears in his eyes, his heart was broken by God. And I would imagine this would be infuriating to people. The families of the prophets who were sawed in half by him. He gets to come back and be forgiven by the Lord. He doesn't get what's coming to him. He killed Isaiah. He murdered the prophets. He sacrificed his son and yet God's going to forgive him? 
Do you understand how this is the tension in the book of 2 Kings? And it's the tension in our lives. God is demonstrating his justice towards Manasseh and that he can also forgive sinners. Now, sin has effects, of course. His son would be a pagan. His son is going to grow up and be an, an evil, wicked king. That doesn't go away just because he got converted. But his life becomes a testimony of God's grace. Manasseh certainly serves as a type of Israel. If you're upset about God forgiving the most wicked person alive at the time, then good. The point is not that Manasseh was wicked, but that Israel was wicked and they got the kind of king they deserved. Israel had the prophets, they had the laws, yet they continually rejected God. And the lesson is this. The reason Manasseh got to reign longer than the other king is so that he could be more wicked than the other king so that his conversion would bring more glory to God than any other king's conversion. This is the lesson that transcended Israel. It goes straight to us. That nobody is too wicked to get saved by God's grace. Peter denied the Lord and yet was restored by the Lord. Paul was a Pharisee and a persecutor. He was a violent man who murdered Christians. <laughs> Remember the disciples thought there's no way Paul could get saved. Not Saul of Tarsus, no way. Yet in 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. I'm sure some of you would say these same words. It was good that the Lord afflicted me because it brought me near to Him. It was good that the Lord showed me my sin because it helped me see my need for Him. When Manasseh prospered, his heart was hardened. And when his nose was broken and his pride was broken, his idols were broken as well. Manasseh started bad and ended well, which is the opposite of Hezekiah and David and Solomon, right? And they started well and ended bad. But the gospel is sufficient at both extremes. And Jesus, of course, is at neither extreme. He was sinless in his entire life. And so this book ends, the book of 2 Kings ends, with the kings being taken away with the hook in his nose. We'll get to that in a few weeks. The last king in 2 Kings gets taken away with the hook in his nose too. And the Israelites would file this away under the Manasseh file, that if we repent, we too can be welcomed back. This morning we sang the song, Not In Me. And uh, still in my mind, Luke 18 Verse 10, let me show it to you. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you, I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes and all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, the gospel is for Davids who start strong and end poorly, and Hezekiahs who start strong and end poorly. The gospel is also for Manassehs who start poorly but end with faith. When we realize that we're sinful and that there's nothing we can do to merit forgiveness, then we realize Jesus came as a physician not to heal the well, but to heal the sick. There may be some of you that are in your Manasseh situation right now. Often Babylon, stuck in your jail cell, your heart has never been broken by the Lord. 
you've never humbled yourself before Him. You even think that there's not enough grace because of the evil sins that you've done. There's no way God could actually forgive you. And for you, Manasseh is your testimony. That yes, there is somebody who is more wicked than you that God forgave. Maybe you've never had a Manasseh-style life. Maybe your testimony does not involve a high-speed police chase. <laughs> Maybe your testimony doesn't involve the SWAT team. It just involves being raised as a normal church kid and following the Lord as long as you can remember. Manasseh should be an encouragement to you as well. The gospel was powerful enough to keep you from that life despite the allurement of sin. It's powerful enough to satisfy you in Christ without having led that life. That's why the story of Manasseh, I think, is one of the most powerful stories in the Old Testament. It shows you that no one is too far away from the Lord to be saved. And it shows you that no one is too close to the Lord, in a sense, to be safe. It doesn't matter who your parents are. In Manasseh's case, the threat of sin is very real. But it doesn't matter how strong sin is because the joy and beauty of the gospel and the forgiveness of Christ can overcome even that. Lord, we're thankful that you our saving God that doesn't just tell us to, to do gooder and try better, but that in Christ you have come to us and overcome the grave. Lord, I pray for my own children and children in Emmanuel. I pray that none of them would have a Manasseh kind of experience, that your kindness would be in their hearts, you would guard them from that kind of sin and wickedness and keep them close to you throughout their life. At the same time, Lord, we do pray with confidence knowing that for those children who have gone wayward, for those children that have gone astray and are living in the world, or even for those that we know that have never come in contact with the gospel and they're leading lives that are filled with wickedness and sin, we, we pray for them knowing that we pray to a God who has the power and the ability and the desire to save the most wicked among us. We're thankful that you're glorified when great sinners are forgiven greatly. We're thankful that there are the Marys in the world that have had their lives turned upside down by the saving grace of the gospel. And that encourages those of us in the church that have never wandered away like that. What a joy it is to know the gospel is strong enough to tether all of us to your truth. We give you thanks for this in the name of Christ. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.